also a traditional Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. Um, I don't even know how to start a podcast episode. Say something funny. Ow. Aren't you glad we don't have to memorize all of this content and then record for memory? Yeah. You know who did? All of Muhammad's companions. On this episode of <laughs> the, the Holy, Holy Watermelon, Watermelon Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> now, of course, our listeners get no break in the action, but it's been a minute since we've recorded and... I don't know how to do a funny soft open anymore. <laughs> That's okay. But uh, we're going to continue our journey of holy books. We're going to talk about the Quran today. Yeah. We straight up, we didn't read it. It's long. <laughs> uh, it's not like the Bhagavad Gita that you can audiobook in two hours. I mean, you can get some pretty decent recitations on youtube yeah oh yeah and that's how i've been listening to it oh good i've been on holidays <laughs> i'm just straight up telling the audience i was uh, i actually thought i should do a bonus episode i was in portugal 77 percent catholic country it's a lot of cool stuff i posted some stuff on our discord if you want to check it out but uh great pictures thank you but yeah so preston listened to it that's good <laughs> i feel like that might be the truer experience even though most of us can read a lot faster than we can listen to something. And I know a lot of you are listening to this at sped up pace, but the recitation is a thing to be listened to in many schools of thought. Yeah, there's a whole tradition of um, like singing and chanting in Islam as well, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Um, the poetry of the Quran doesn't really carry over in most translations, into English at least anyway. There's a lot of rhyming in the Arabic of oh, the cool. Quran. But... You know. That's not typically transferred over into English very well. Most rhymes aren't. No. Unless you have the same root language. Right. Yeah. Cross-language rhyming is hard. You got to reformat the, con the, the construct entirely. Mm -hmm. When I was in German in high school, we had to do a, like an infomercial, like commercial in oh, yeah. German. And I made something rhyme in German and I was very proud of myself. Very nice. I remember in junior high, I wrote a poem in French, and it, it had a pretty good rhyme, and I decided a little while later, I bet you I could translate this into a decent poem in English, and had it rhyme, but I did have to change some of the content. Mm, yeah. And that's the risk you do you have to take when you uh, translate poetry. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it's somewhere, but as we've talked about before, the Quran isn't the Quran unless it's in Arabic. Right. So everything else is a translation of the Quran. Right. It's it's not legit if it's not specifically the Uthmanic format, okay. which we'll get into later. There are variants, but it's some interesting stuff a little later on. So as I mentioned, or at least alluded to, recitation is a big deal because that's what the, the word Quran actually means. The Quran is the recitation. That's a reference to how the text was originally transmitted. Yeah. Muhammad, I shouldn't say just spoke. That's probably blasphemous, <laughs> but uh, he, he spoke the words. Yeah. This collection, as we've talked about in the last few episodes, compared to the Bible, which is a collection of texts, a collection of books by different authors. The Quran is a collection of sayings. 
though a lot less diverse in its authorship because we just got the one guy. Yeah, so it was just <laughs> Muhammad, the prophet. So there was likely a few editors because they were all, this book was compiled after he passed, but there's no new content. Yeah, it'd be uh, pretty tough for any one of those editors to get new content past the other editors. Right. Um, <laughs> but there are, of course, the hadiths, which are stories about Muhammad, which, again, as we talked about, I think even a little bit with Dr. West and in our Sunni and Shia episode, people just created hadiths to fit their own purposes, too. So Yeah, one... Even legitimate sayings are accepted or rejected based on their utility for that group. Right. Tricky business. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of committee work that goes into the production of these these sorts of works. But it's interesting stuff to study. Yeah. The Quran is meant to be the single greatest proof that Muhammad was a prophet and the most beautiful work of Arabic writing in existence. Just like the Bible's the greatest story ever told, right? Right. This idea of it being the most beautiful work of Arabic writing in existence, I mean, naturally is subjective. Part of the the trick that is the Quranic recitation is that it actually is the model upon which modern Arabic is based. Interesting. I mean, Arabic, Arabic also varies from one nation to the next a little bit. Just like English. Yeah. I'm but... chuffed. <laughs> I don't even use that word here. Right. But the the Quran helped inform a lot of how Arabic developed or stagnated in some ways. And of course, there's the the natural inclination that comes with veneration that makes a thing perceived as beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it is subjective, but it is a common label. Well, like you said, <laughs> the greatest story ever told, right? That yeah. is also subjective. Yeah. Personally, a Lord of the Rings fan. Sure. <laughs> I heard a fella say the other day, and we'll talk a little bit more about how this relates to Islam a little later on, oh, okay. that the Christianity is the only religion where God dies at the end. It was David Tennant. I actually don't know the name of the show. I heard it in passing in the background somewhere, but he's the one who delivered the line. And it just felt really weird to me that it's a weird thing to say because there's an awful lot of religions where the gods die. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's so much that um, has this idea of a second coming, right? Even Buddhism has the idea that the Buddha will come back or yeah. we have the Dalai Lama will, when he goes, someone will come back. Yeah. Like, well, and some Muslims believe that the 10th Caliph will come back. Right. So, interesting. Yeah. Or 10th, 12th. Tenth Doctor is David Tennant. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That may have been what screwed me up. <laughs> My favorite. The Twelvers believe the Twelfth will come back. <laughs> Maybe it was Doctor Who because he keeps coming back. Right. I mean, David Tennant isn't just ten anymore. David Tennant is coming back. What? I will watch it again. I. What? <laughs> he was my favorite Doctor. I mean, yeah, he was pretty great. I'm having a moment on air that I wasn't planning on having. <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. The Twelvers are waiting for the Twelve One to come back. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of religions where God dies and comes back. So yeah, interesting. Uh, tradition states that Muhammad never wrote down the recitations. No, not once. He would just keep talking to people and hope. 
I mean, remember, we I think we talked about this in our Islam episode that people and it's a misconception was that Muhammad was like illiterate and uneducated. Uh, well, in Risa Aslan's book, he points out he was a very successful right. merchant. Yeah. So we for our um, one of our, our first uh, book club, we did uh, No God But God. And yeah, it says that that's a big misconception that he would have. He was a merchant, kept books in accounting, so he would have been smart. Maybe he was just a really good salesman, could pitch anything, could close any deal, but didn't write any of it down. Right? It could I be. I mean, I know could people be. that run their businesses like that to this day. So <laughs> anyway, every year, the angel Gabriel, which is Gabriel, your Christian and Hebrew Bibles. Yeah. Would recite the Quran with Muhammad every night during the month of Ramadan, but he did that twice the year Muhammad died. So Muhammad had a lot of time to make sure that he was remembering things right, because this was every year over the course of about 23 years, I think was the magic number. That makes a lot of sense, because when I was looking into the chapter breakdowns, and I mean, the Bible and Christian Bible and Hebrew Bible do this too, but there's a lot of repetition where one mm -hmm. chapter is on the judgment day and then five chapters later, it's on judgment day. So yep. if you kept it... Obviously, he didn't live 114 years, but if <laughs> the angel kept coming back, there'd be amendments and things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's definitely amendments. Sometimes there's a different word used. It'll be in the notes further down. I can't remember right now. But yeah, some verses from these surahs would be retracted. Right. And the the law is that Allah will not retract a verse without giving something in its place. Well, I like to that. supersede it, which, of course, can be confusing when you've got different companions memorizing what will become outdated content. Right. <laughs> outdated as in humans are misinterpreting it. So I'm going to give you. A little... No, I mean, outdated as in Allah gave a, well, but... a different version a couple years later through Jibril. I mean, I would say God wouldn't change his mind. <laughs> My guess would be like when you try to tell someone how to build a peanut butter sandwich, you know, that exercise. And you realize and they get you it wrong. Right? Because why would God change his mind? Sometimes it's to meet the needs of the people. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Sometimes the people are in a different situation and need different rulings altogether. Sometimes <laughs> the point of these are contradictory rulings. Go east. Keep going east. No, no, no. Now you need to go west. Too far. You got too far east. That kind of thing. Not exclusively in that sort of category, but that sort of idea feels like a good illustration. Okay. A good illustration. The final recitation from Gabriel is allegedly the one Uthman standardized decades later. Super hard to prove. Yep. <laughs> we are talking about a product defined by a committee, and it's entirely possible they did not land on the final version of all these recitations. Yep. So legend has that a bunch of the companions, and we don't know who, met with Muhammad after the last meeting with Gabriel to confirm the correct recitation. But that and doesn't mean the rescinded ones didn't persist. Yeah. It's tricky business. Because not all the companions are going to get the memo right away. So that's that's where the Quran comes from. But what is the Quran? It's... It includes a lot of talk about how to live the good life and what that means. And that's really the focus of it, mostly. A lot of ideas are taken straight out of Jewish and Christian philosophical discourse. It's 
kind of funny. Every now and then you'll hear accusations that, oh yeah, this is pulled straight out of the Bible. But I don't think there was an Arabic translation of any of the biblical texts at the time. Yeah, I don't know if it was pulled straight out, but there's definitely chapters on the nativity and on the crucifixion. Yeah. Uh, lots of stories about Moses and Abraham, obviously. Uh, so I was actually surprised how much overlap there was. Like I knew there were some yeah. as it's Return of the Jedi. Um, <laughs> Muhammad was acquainted with Jews and Christians. They yeah. did exist in the same space. And so even if there wasn't a biblical text to be copied from or to influence, the stories stories definitely were getting around. Well, and and there is a chapter that Muhammad basically says, like, this is the same religion. I'm just giving you a software update. Yeah, basically. There's an awful lot of content that is similar to what we find in the Bible, especially if you want to talk about how to treat your neighbors, what to eat. A lot of similarities there, but also some differences. How to treat your family, other believers and strangers. It's kind of troublesome. If if you were to just Google criticisms of the Quran, you will get some instances that pull up verses that look really awful. Some of these are due to linguistic ambiguities, where words could mean a couple of different things depending on how you choose to translate and interpret that word. Right. And I was reading, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but similar to Hebrew, they take out the vowels. Taking out feels like a really weird thing to say. They simply didn't write vowels vowels. for a long time. Oh, okay. It wasn't part of the language. Okay. Right. So it wasn't an afterthought. It was, you don't write with vowels, and you would know the context, so you know what word it fits. But centuries later, we have problems. Yes. Now, if you look at a modern Quran, you will find vowel marks, um, which are usually dots, um, much like Hebrew, dots and lines or over or under the letters to give you a sense of the sound it's supposed to make. And it is a little bit funky that way, but kind of interesting for the linguist in me. Yeah, cool. But yeah, there's there's ambiguity in words. That's just the, the way it goes. There's also passages, uh, by passages I mean entire sections of the Quran, that talk about what what's good to eat, what isn't good to eat, why sometimes, what is the proper way to show deference to God and his messenger naturally as an extension thereof, and the recitations as a portion of God's identity, which is the way that this is always explained, that the recitations come from God through Jibril, through Muhammad. But they are ultimately meant to be understood as coming from God. An awful lot of authority coming with these words. Yep. There's passages about what to believe about the old prophets. Like you had mentioned, it it does talk about Adam, Noah, Abraham, all of the great patriarchs. Talks a little bit more about Moses' dad than the book of Exodus does, which is interesting. Yeah. And his prophetic role. A lot of interesting people get their stories expanded on. The Quran talks a lot more about Mary than it does than the New Testament does. A lot of the content that we find about Jesus and Mary actually has some weird similarities to a Syriac gospel that was counted as heretical by the early Christians, and uh, also the the proto gospel of James. Okay, cool. Um, so, some weird stories. Was not that the accepted. Proto gospel was is that the infancy gospel? 
No, that's Thomas. Yeah, I mean, gospel. it is an infancy gospel a little bit. It focuses more on Mary mm. um, in an interesting sort of way. And all these stories get adopted into the Islamic tradition. And it's it seems really likely that the Syriac gospel was definitely available in the Muslim community. Interesting. And helping potentially inform some of these I choices. Mean, Syriac meaning Syrian? Yeah. So that part of the world, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. There we also have passages about what to expect about the end of the world, how believers and unbelievers can expect to be rewarded in the next life. There's things about how to interact with people of other faith traditions. And as far as I've observed, there is no other religious canon that is as repetitive and explicit about how much people of other faiths will be tortured. But I remember in, in Reza Aslan's book that they did have like a sudden level of respect for Christians and Jews. Yes. Um, and they have this great title is the people of the book. Right. Um, and you always got to be good to Jews and Christians. But the polytheists, they Hate. are the bane of the world. <laughs> it's a little rough, but that's what we get. Muhammad was very insistent that everybody in his community must be a monotheist. And the only monotheist tradition, of course, is that of Abraham, that he is endorsing yeah um rather forcefully worded <laughs> yeah there's a lot of content that we see in the quran talking about biblical characters that is actually incompatible with the tales that we already have in the bible um some of them are outright contrary the jesus story uh jesus wasn't crucified according to the quran instead there was this big trickery business where they swapped out Jesus for a lookalike. Watch out, Glenn. They're coming for you. <laughs> <gasps> oh, no, not Glenn. Uh, the great winner of our recent Jesus lookalike contest. <laughs> That's interesting. Have you ever read? It's by Philip Pullman, the guy who wrote his dark materials. No. Nope. He wrote a great book called The Good man, Jesus, and the scoundrel Christ. I, think I have heard of this book. And that's literally what it is, is that there's twins. And one's like a preacher and like the Jesus we know, but mm -hmm. he doesn't get famous. And the other one's a snake oil salesman and gets this big following. And when he's about to be crucified, his brother steps in for him. Hmm. But then the twin pops up and everyone's like, ah, he's been resurrected. <laughs> Uh, it is. It was an interesting story. That is interesting. I might have that backwards on who steps in for who. It's Fair been years enough. since I've written, uh, years since I read it. So if anyone's like, that's backwards, Katie, it very well could be. But anyway, one gets really famous, flips the table, about to get crucified, his brother steps in for him. And then the other one's like, ta-da! That is an interesting way to tell the story. It is. I actually was like, I can get behind this. Right. So Jesus did have a brother who looked a lot like him, according to some traditions. Thomas is a butchering of the Hebrew word for twin. Oh, interesting. And um, some some of the Gospels will call him Thomas Didymus. Didymus is the Greek word for twin. Oh, wow. And so 
we have no story of Jesus' birth that says, oh yeah, and a twin brother came out right after. <laughs> or right before or whatever. Um, but the, the story is that Judah was the name he was given at birth. And Thomas Didymus is the nickname given to him because Jesus did that, gave everybody nicknames. Because I can't remember anyone's real name. It was the story <laughs> in my head. Uh, there's any number of reasons. <laughs> uh, but this Judah was supposed to look just like Jesus. And where do we get that? Is that like in Apocrypha? Not Apocrypha because it's New Testament. But, in, uh, yeah, it's in, the, the rejected gospel. Okay, interesting. But it, I think it's really interesting. And this same Thomas is the one who doubted the stories of, oh, yeah, Jesus came back. Because well, everyone's saying, yeah, they saw Jesus. These stories don't convince me. I mean, I look like Jesus. Either they're talking about me or somebody else who looks a lot like me wandering around. So I'll believe it when I see Jesus himself and he put my finger through the hole in his hand. And he did. And then he did. All right. That seems rude. <laughs> uh, it does. It, the way it's worded in the gospel also makes it sound a little rude. Yeah, I, it's A, gross, but B... <laughs> rude you don't just stick your finger in someone's wound that is unsanitary at best right <laughs> unless you've properly washed your hands even and are a surgeon yeah <laughs> even so i don't think a surgeon would be like doop, 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 doop. Uh, so gross <clears throat> but anyway muslims reject the story that jesus was crucified naturally this continues into the idea that he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world he is the savior of the Jews, but not of the world. And even that is separate from his death. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Also, the story of Abraham's arrested sacrifice. You know, go sacrifice your firstborn son. Haha, <laughs> just jokes. Don't kill him. <laughs> we were just testing you. It's not Isaac that goes up the mountain with him in the Muslim tradition, but instead Ishmael, who is, in fact, the older son. Oh, Okay. Um, both traditions agree on that detail, but it's a really good way to make the Abraham story more relatable to the Arabic audience at the time that it was recited, because the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, not Isaac. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. So it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Some people say the Quran is cyclical um, because it has no beginning or ending. Now, of course, this doesn't make sense when you have a book with a front and a back, but it does. it is a thing that you can just keep looping. It's not a hard stop. Right, because the recitation must continue. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, a little bit. The thing that makes it feel weird to say is that the reason there's no chronological continuity in the book is because of deliberate action to put all of the surahs in order from longest to shortest, with the exception of the introduction. Right. So that's the intro to the shortest. Yeah. Yeah. The choice to artificially destroy the continuity is what makes that cyclical thing a reality. Were they inspired by the epistles? Because that's the same thing. It is this exact same activity. It may have been. I doubt it, but I have to admit it's possible. I mean, I just... <laughs> Don't know why two major books would be organized that way, because it's kind of a dumb way to organize things. <laughs> it is not my preferred way to organize things. Imagine um, reading Harry Potter in order from longest <laughs> chapter to shortest chapter. 
cut up all seven books yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. and arrange them from longest chapter. I Your kind brain of want melt. to. I kind of want to. <laughs> uh, that'd be just awful. Now my brain's going. Side project. I like the idea. The poetic nature of the book allows itself to be cyclical, but it is entirely artificial. So Preston, who wrote this down? That's a fantastic question. It looks like a lot of the companions probably wrote some of these sayings down. According to Sunni Muslim tradition, it was Abu Bakr, the first caliph, who was actually only boss for like two years after Muhammad died. Abu Bakr compiled the Quran, either getting all the best stories from the companions or just recording the single divinely approved collection from his own memory or somewhere in between. I'm going to go with that one. It seems very likely. We're, of course, relying on the trickiness of history. We've got a lot of centuries in between then and now. But there was, you know, a good strong force of committee to make sure that this work was done in a way that was at least authoritative with Abu Bakr as the chief of that. A bunch of other companions, like I said, probably wrote things down. There was definitely some mismatches. And we'll get into what that looks like in the kind of why that's an important thing to remember later on. But after about 20 years, a fellow named Uthman, who was the third caliph, canonized the standard version of the Quran that is used by Muslims worldwide today. He brought a committee together, as Preston mentioned, to produce the best version that could be read in as many ways as possible. So this is the no vowel thing. Yeah, because there's no vowels, there's a lot of different ways these words can be read. And a really important part of this process was making sure that all of the different variants that people were remembering, either correctly or incorrectly, could be accommodated by one text. Making the most diverse text possible with a string of consonants. And they didn't think that would cause problems. No. Okay. Well. <laughs> it's tricky. There, yeah. There are weaknesses in this program, but it's not as open to ridiculousness as one could expect. I guess, like, if you look at any given word, how many times can you change a vowel for it to make sense? Well, yeah, longer words, you're going to have a less ambiguity. Cat, Shorter words. Cut. Cut. Yeah. Short words have loads of ambiguity. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about the Semitic language group is they really like three-letter words. Who doesn't? Like. That's great for Scrabble, crosswords. Sure. Three-letter words are great. Well, and if it's consonant, vowel mark, consonant vowel mark consonant with the option for a vowel mark again either the beginning or end or both you've got really quite a a variety of words you can use because we're not usually building really long words this has caused troubles <laughs> yes it would when uthman completed the text he distributed it everywhere and then he commanded that all other versions of the quran be destroyed they really like fire why not? Who doesn't? It's a great way to permanently destroy a book. A lot of uh, manuscripts uh, we've since found were just erased and then written over, which mm. is really quite interesting and novel that this is something that we've been able to find, that we can actually go back and look at some of these older versions of the Quran. And see what changed. And, and see what has changed. It's really fascinating. Yes, we do have manuscripts that show with fancy technology we have today an old script with a new script written much easier to read on top. And we can compare those and see the different text forms. Super cool. Um, not that there's a lot of those around, but there are some. 
there are some very specific rules about what counts as the canonical Quran. Now, of course, there's lots of different ways that a text can be read because of the lack of vowels. There is, depending on which group you're with, different vowels used with the text. A lot of the time, though, you'll see it without vowels. But it's a lot easier to read with vowel marks. So most people will prefer that. Yeah. Uh, there is one specific reading, one set of vowels that's used most commonly around the world. Imperialism has that sort of effect. But there are variants that are deemed acceptable, even if they're not authoritative for the greater community. Right. But those vowel marks, that's the really important things that can be moved around. Uh, so these are the rules. The text must conform to the consonantal framework of the Uthmanic Codex. What does that mean? It's got to have the same written consonants Consonant. all the way through. There's exceptions. <laughs> but generally, this is the number one rule. Okay. And the number two rule is the text must be consistent with standard or at least acceptable Arabic grammar. So when you're reading it, it needs to make sense. It needs to make sense. Okay, good. Solid logical rule. And the last is the text must come from an approved chain of transmission. So two of these three rules rely a lot, an awful lot on committee decisions. Yes. So we've <laughs> talked about chain of transmission before, is that you have to be able to say who got it from who, got it from who, got it from who, got it from yeah. who. And the, the authoritative forms of the Quran have very short chains of transmission. So-and-so, Uthman got it from Muhammad. Done. Basically. Not quite that short. Usually it's a, a three-person chain. But uh, no, Katie got it from Preston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got it from Dr. West. Got it from... Right. Uh, the scholarly majority opinion is that the Uthmanic Codex deliberately accommodated a number of aruf, some of the differences of the aruf, not all of them. What's an aruf? An aruf is the style of recitation, mm. which is a little different than the kirat, which is the technical recitation. There are officially seven dialectical variants of the Quran. Just based on different forms of Arabic? Basically. Basically. Dialect, yeah. The, the thing that bothers me is that the story is that there's exactly seven there are seven ways to read the one standard text based on how you want to vowel everything basically okay that there, seems there's exceptions and, permutations and, and combinations tell me that that's not correct <laughs> i wasn't great at math but yeah um of course seven has a literary function of many and uh, exactly seven people take this literally <laughs> Right. <laughs> there are seven main canonical readings, but there are more. There are three additional readings that were accepted later on, and not like a long time later. We're not talking like 30 years ago business, but just just later enough to not be in the original seven. In the OGs. Yeah. But there are also four more readings that are still in use that are not considered canonical by the greater Muslim community around the world, but are still used. That's interesting. Yeah, I do not like this tradition myself, but the tradition is that Muhammad received the Quran in full in seven different ways and spread those out to different communities. You, you see why that feels like a weird thing to say? Yes, because... For his lifetime, he had a tight-knit group that followed him. Yeah. So I guess it depends what happens after 
Yeah. But then it still wouldn't. Yeah, this story doesn't really seem to jive to with the story that we have of Muhammad's life. Yeah. Uh, that just feels really weird. But this is the official story. Reciting it in several different dialects. Can you imagine how much people would love us if we also produced this podcast separately with an Aussie accent? I was going to say we could do it in a Cockney accent. <laughs> And then we'll get more British viewers. I think we're going to get British hate mail now. I know we're ranking in the UK. So if you're really upset by this, please join our Discord and tell me. Uh, I talk in a British accent far too often. But I would redo this entire podcast in this voice. So this is part of why I feel really weird about this story. But... (laughs) Now I've started. I don't know if I can stop. <laughs> uh, maybe you should just stop talking for a little while right. and, and reset your okay. language. All right. <laughs> so the story comes from an illustration given as a conflict between Umar ibn al-Khattab and Hisham ibn Hakim. From the perspective of Umar, he says, I heard Hisham ibn Hakim reciting Surah al-Furqan during the lifetime of Allah's Messenger. I listened to his recitation and noticed that he had recited it in several different ways, which the Prophet had not taught me. I was about to jump over him during his prayer, but I was able to contain myself, and when he had completed his prayer, I put his upper garment around his neck and seized him by it and said, Who taught you this surah, which I heard you reciting? He replied, The Prophet taught it to me. I said, You are wrong, for the Prophet has taught it to me in a different way from yours. So I took him to Allah's messenger and said, O messenger of Allah, I heard this individual reciting Surah Al-Furqan in a way that you did not teach me, and you have taught me Surah Al-Furqan. The prophet said, O Hisham, recite. So he recited in the same way as I heard him recite it before. On that, Allah's messenger said, it was revealed to be recited in this way. Then Allah's messenger said, recite O Umar. So I recited it as he had taught me. Allah's messenger then said, it was revealed to be recited in this way. The exact same response he'd given for a variant. For two different, yeah. yeah. Allah's apostle added, This Quran has been revealed to be recited in seven different aruf. So recite it whichever way is easier for you. I feel like the story is fiction, but is a very useful fiction for mitigating conflict at a time where there was an awful lot of conflict. Yes. That's, that's my gut instinct here. Yeah, I just feel like... And we can see it in other religions having variations just causes problems. And I don't know why anyone would. Well, yeah, we've got so many different text forms for the New Testament. Uh, it's a shorter list for the Hebrew Bible, but there's an awful lot of variation in these old texts. And so the need to have a single unified text that is also compatible with different traditions in a way that mitigates conflict is actually a very powerful tool. Yeah, cause conflict later on down the road, but then Muhammad's like, bye. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the conflict just is exactly laid out in this story. Now, there are more than just dialectical accents. Funny business. I'm going to let the words guy handle this. There there are variants (laughs) in many different forms. You've got changes in singularity, duality, plurality, uh, changes masculinity, femininity. Verb morphology is tricky business. If you know what that means, awesome. Uh, It's verb tense, like past, present, future, perfect, imperfect. The forms of the words, the grammatical person attached to these verbs. There's an awful lot of this throughout the book. 
um, word order sometimes gets moved around. And this is where we deviate a little bit from the strict conformity of the Uthmanic Codex, is that sometimes your tradition can move the words around a little bit. Usually it's just a, a simple swap. Yeah. Like moving towards the right side by side around each other. Sometimes you can get bigger changes than that. Sometimes there's whole omissions, substitutions, or additions of words, which deviates a little bit more from well, the Uthmanic more problematic, skeleton. Yeah. And weirdly enough, there are cases where you have transposition of consonants within words. So in English, an example of this would be switching dog into God, which this specific example is quite problematic Unless for Muslims. Unless you're a dog person. <laughs> well, because right. dogs are her Rom, But if you're Katie, <laughs> accurate. Right. So there's an awful lot of variance that can happen in this text that is very often vehemently argued that there are no variants. You got into trouble online. Yeah, I mentioned just one specific variant text a few months ago on our, on our oh, this, social I'd media. I'd say this is almost a year ago on our social media. But I think did. you're probably right. <clears throat> yeah, I think it probably was pretty close to a year ago. But we mentioned you know, uh, a variant of the Quranic text. And a guy, not a close friend, but a friend, uh, said, this is not okay. It's not based in truth. I'm like, this, no, I've, I've given you the name of a specific example. You can't tell me it doesn't exist. But most Muslims have been taught there are no versions of the Quran, no variants. You've got the book and different ways to read it. But that's simply not factual. <laughs> There are, there are no authoritative variants. That's a fair thing to say, because there are texts that do not adhere to the Uthmanic text form that are rejected. But to say that there are no variants at all is simply, simply untrue. And this sort of misunderstanding could lead people to lose their faith. And in the specific example that I have cited in my own life, has definitely brought trouble to a friendship. Sad. Yeah. Oh, well. We're here to bring the truth. In Kufa, Iraq, as soon as Uthman presented his Quran, there are people who rejected his authority and Uthman's authorized version of the Quran. Instead of accepting his book, they preferred a text produced by a Quranic expert named Abdallah bin Masud. And this version was used in public readings and prayers and was, in, was endorsed publicly as the official Quran of the area. Huh. Yeah. I think it's kind of I mean, interesting. Yeah, whoever's more popular. I get it. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. You can't just show up and change someone's belief system. Right? I mean, people have tried so much. That's what imperialism's all about. <laughs> Mormons. <laughs> Knocking on doors Not one here. at a time. <laughs> Ibn Masood's Quran didn't include the first surah, that the, the old opener. But it also doesn't have the last couple of surahs the last two that are incantations for protection from evil. I thought that was kind of interesting. So his version was shorter. 111 chapters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also it had many material differences from the Uthmanic Codex, slightly different stories or different statements about the various things that are in the world. And there's really a pretty good chance that there were a lot of other holdouts. A lot of people saying, you know what? We don't really want Uthman, but imperialism. History is written by the victors. He got his way. Yeah. 
So for a while, Western scholars suspected that the Quran wasn't written down by Muhammad's companions, but by later devotees more than 150 years later. Bible vibes. There was a, just this general idea among scholars that, well, I mean, the Bible's so far removed from the time of the actual events. Obviously, the Quran must too. We found an awful lot of evidence to say that this weird Western idea is false, oh, at least in this specific scenario with the Quran. Several Kufic manuscripts previously thought to be the oldest did date to around 800 CE. So it gives that 150 years idea some solid ground to stand on. Yeah. But recent work has shown that there were certainly many manuscripts at the time of The Last Companion, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, leaving no evidence for this newer history and giving evidence to the old tradition. So I think that's really cool. The oldest available written Quran might be the Codex Parisino Petropolitanus. It's a long name. It's hard to say without breaking it up. Yeah. And <laughs> the Codex Parisino Petropolitanus. There you go. Yeah, it's pretty Latin. But basically, the Paris Codex. That's what I got from the first <laughs> word was Paris. It's a lot easier to say, even though it's not technically correct. <laughs> so in 2015, a folio of the parchment in Birmingham was dated to between 568 and 645 CE. You'll notice that first date, the opening of this window. Muhammad's still alive. Well, actually, the opening of this window, Muhammad hasn't even been born yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was pretty sure it was all in the 600s. But. It's pretty interesting. It could make it one of the earliest copies ever produced after Muhammad's death. Assuming, of course, that we didn't produce anything until after he died, which is the tradition. Yes. It's ambiguous whether it would be before or after Uthman's authoritative version. The date's kind of tricky. But it does actually have some interesting variants from the form. The final yeah. form. So it, it isn't Uthmanic, but we, we, we don't know where it falls. can't say for sure if it's older or newer than his authorized version. The manuscript contains decorative features previously expected to be later additions to the textual tradition. Marine van Putten from Leiden University in the Netherlands claims that because of the way some of the words are spelled, this manuscript is obviously written after Uthman's authoritative work, even though, or in, in spite of these textual variants, which I thought was really interesting. Alba Fideli wrote early Quranic manuscripts. He's from the University of Birmingham. Thank you. And he said, the manuscript bears some phonetic, orthographic, morphologic, and syntactic variants, but also a few lexical variants, among which there are variants related to the voice and recipient of the message, and some variants due to the mechanical errors during the copying activity. Lastly, the manuscript exhibits a few peculiar features as regards the subdivision of the Quranic text into verses. So really fancy way of saying there are actually some pretty substantial variants. And then I didn't realize Spider-Man <laughs> knew a lot about this. Ah, yes. Tom Holland, the Oxford PhD dropout. He is a historian. Not Spider-Man. Not Spider-Man. Yeah. Interesting fella decided partway through working to get his PhD that it just wasn't worth it because he can still do all the work and get all the fame without needing to pay for that PhD. And... I mean, he's doing some good work. I mean, as a millennial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here we are, no PhD, but we're doing some of the work. A lot of work. So he's one of a few scholars who are using this very, very old manuscript as evidence that the Quran might predate Muhammad. Interesting. Yeah. 
Tom Holland says that the manuscript's carbon dating destabilizes the idea that we can know anything with certainty about how the Quran emerged, and that in turn has implications for the historicity of Muhammad and his followers. Now, is carbon dating getting better? Like in 20 years, could they get more accurate with it? Maybe. I don't know anything about carbon science. dating some some interesting science for sure but we do have some pretty solid dates here tom holland is one of those scholars who like a lot of people try and say well the historical jesus is entirely not real tom holland seems to say the same sort of thing about muhammad which is a little problematic <laughs> because we've we've got some pretty strong evidence that muhammad was real yeah i mean again there's the the historical person and the spiritual person Honestly, I imagine Muhammad probably did recite something, whether it was divinely inspired, though, or he found some papers that he thought were really interesting. Right. We don't know. Another fella, Keith Small from the University of Oxford, who did get his PhD, uh, admits that this gives more ground to what have been peripheral views of the Quran's genesis, that Muhammad and his early followers used a text that was already in existence shaped it to fit their own political and theological agenda, rather than Muhammad receiving a revelation from heaven. These are big, accredited voices. Yeah. I think there is a, a less world-shaking view to take on this very ancient manuscript. And it's that the skin was stored unused for a while before it was inked to record the Quran. <laughs> Uh, because carbon dating relies entirely on when the animal died. That's what's being dated. Right. You'd have to carbon date whatever the ink. I don't know if that's even possible. It's, it seems to be tricky because people aren't doing that. Well, I don't know there's much probably about that not process. enough ink to car carbon date. That's probably fair. But yeah, it's it's about when the animal died. And... I think there's a decent chance that the skin was just stored for a while before anybody wrote that on it. That feels like a long while, though. It doesn't need to be a long while. I, just, I was, mean, okay, but if we've got was, a big window. We here. do, right? So if it happened in whatever, 568, and Muhammad wasn't born until the 600s, that is a very long the, time. Yeah, that would be a long time to store a skin without writing So we'd have to get a more accurate date. But if it died in 645, that's a much more convenient time to maybe not even store the skin for very long before writing on it. Right. And of course, the middle of the window puts us honestly pretty close to when Muhammad was born. So that does feel a little bit weird, storing a skin for 40 years or whatever. But I don't think it lasts that long for oh. writing purpose. I don't know anything about skin. Let's be real. I don't know anything about writing on skin. Things get brittle as they age. But I've, I would imagine it would be okay to write on for a while. It would be weird storing unused skin paper for that long. Yeah, because in a time when we don't have a lot of resources for yeah. storage. Right. So that's my non-world-shaking angle on this. But yeah, there's still loads of argument to be had on this. And Dave Thomas... Another famous name that is not from the same famous person. Oh. This is not the guy from Wendy's. No, I want Wendy's uh, now. From the University of Birmingham. Also emphasizes that there's a, a good chance that this skin might have been stored for a while after the animal died. Who knows? Not us. Things not yet. remain to be studied and discovered. So there's a, an awful lot of history on 
the life of the Quran. And it's a little different than the life of the Bible. Yeah. It's not a whole bunch of authors, but one author and I would say a unique editorial process relative to the other books we've talked about so far. Yeah. A very strict. I mean, the Quran itself talks a lot about, well, saying the Quran is, it's not one thing. A lot of the recitations within the text, the collected text, say that the recitations that are received are holy and meant to be preserved in a specific sort of way with reverence. And so the people who believe in this book have really taken that to heart and taken great care to make sure that the reproduction of this text so that it can be enjoyed for millennia have given us something that has gone pretty much unmodified since the act of authorization. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's one of the nice th nice things, I guess, about saying that it has to be in Arabic to be real, is that, or legitimate, or however you want to word that, is that we don't have all these variations like we went through with the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, the, the Christian tradition of translating the text into Latin and then into English and all these middle steps from people who maybe don't know the languages as well as they should. <laughs> this problem doesn't exist. Every translation must come from the Arabic and the original Arabic is preserved. I think it's kind of nifty. Yeah. All right. There's another holy book down. Right. We might uh, take a closer look later on. As, of course, we are doing currently with the Hebrew Bible. I'm slow at reading it, but <laughs> it's coming, guys. This is our bonus episodes, which you can find on Patreon. We have a series called Katie Does the Bible Study. But we also have other uh, bonus episodes on hot topic religious news. We also have our book club where you can join us and we'll reread a book on religious studies and have a great coffee time about it. Thank you to Lisa, our current Patreon at that level. What else? We've got our Instagram, our Facebook, YouTube, Discord. We having all kinds of fun all over the internet. Friends, if you like this podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friend because that's how we're going to grow. Thanks for joining us. Peace, Peace be, be with, with you. you. By the late Middle Ages, the Christian prophecy had fulfilled.